Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Ness and Dorma. This is your chat about 80s and 90s football. Uh, this week, we're going to be taking a pretty long look at the Graham Taylor years. And before you all turn off the podcast, we don't mean the England misery. We actually mean his years at Watford. And helping me navigate these waters and taking a break from chatting about cycling will be the author of many books on Watford and Graham Taylor himself, uh, Mr. Lionel Burney. Good evening, Lionel. Good evening. And also joining us all the way from the US of A, super fan, uh, Mac Millings. Good evening, Mac. Evening, Lee. Hello, Lionel. Hi there. Uh, you are both Watford men who can help shed a great deal of light on this, because, which is a good thing, because if it was me, it would just be an hour of saying Elton John song titles and talking about John Barnes. So it's quite, I'm, I'm very glad that you're both here. Uh, that may still happen, of course, but it'll just be punctuating your actual proper knowledge of the subject. There will also be an outstanding Watford-related journeyman of the week later on. Uh, this is the Ness and Dorma podcast. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, which is at Ness and Dorma Pod. There's a website, nessandormapod.com. You can get in touch with us, contact at Ness and Dorma Pod. On the website, you'll find a mailing list and all that kind of stuff. Thank you, everybody who's listening. And there's new listeners coming on every week. We are very appreciative that you're giving us some of our, some of your precious time, not our precious time, that's irrelevant, your precious time. So let's crack on straight away and talk about Watford. Now, for those who don't know, I suppose it's worthwhile talking about um, when Graham Taylor took over, which was in 1977, yeah. uh, Lionel, we're talking about exactly what kind of state, and it probably is the right word to describe it, is it, state Watford were in pre-1977? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a club that was not really going anywhere. It's trodden water since joining the league. Um, a lower division club had a very brief um, three years in, well, not even really the sunshine, just a kind of uh, a sort of spring, a little, a, a sort of spring balmy afternoon, really, at the at the end of the 60s and early 70s when Ken Percy took them into the second division and to an FA Cup semi-final, which they lost 
5-1 to Chelsea. So it was nice uh, the other week to turn the tables on Chelsea and, <laughs> and beat them 4-1. It's been, it's been a long time coming, that one. Um, yeah. But, uh, it, you know, the club was really going nowhere. Um, it slipped back into the fourth division. Elton John, who was by then, you know, we're talking the mid-70s here, was already a, a, a global superstar. And he bought this club because he loved it. He watched them from the terraces as a, as a boy and as a young man. And he had the means to buy them. Um, but uh, it took him a little while to kind of impose himself, I guess. And it, it wasn't until 1977 that he realised that, um, you know, Mike Keane was not going to be the manager to rejuvenate. Or not even rejuvenate, because there, there, was, there was nothing to sort of restore about the club. It had to be really built from the, from the ground up. And uh, Elton, kind of being Elton, I guess, maybe attracted by the star quality, but his first thought was to appoint Bobby Moore, World Cup winning captain, um, you know, fantastic footballer. Uh, obviously, you know, that would have been a huge coup, wouldn't it, to, to attract Bobby Moore to this run-down, tumble-down fourth division football club. His management um, career, Bobby Moore, was it, was it would have been more of a kind of look how important we are appointment than I look how good a manager appointment, though, wouldn't it? I think it probably would have been, yeah. Um, you know, I don't think Bobby Moore's management career was uh, anything to, you know, wouldn't have held a, a candle to his playing career. Um, and I think a couple of the Watford directors were a little bit cautious about this and thought, well, what does Bobby Moore really know about the fourth division, you know, playing matches through the winter on, on syrupy pitches? Um, is this going to really be the right kind of appointment for us? Uh, or is it is it just a kind of a starry-eyed appointment? Um, as it turned out, Elton had done a bit of research of his own, and he called Don Revy, um, you know, England manager, of course, uh, and said, you know, if you were me trying to pick a manager for the fourth division, who would you go for? And Don Revy said the name Graham Taylor, who had obviously steered Lincoln out of the fourth division a couple of years before that with a record points total, and had a, a sort of growing reputation of his own. I think when Elton first, uh, you know, approached Graham. You know, Graham wasn't terribly impressed. You know, I think he thought his next move would be significantly upwards from Lincoln, who were in the third division, rather than sort of stepping back down again to the fourth division. But Elton managed to persuade him. They had a meeting at Elton's house in Old Windsor. Um, quite a, the way Graham tells the story for his autobiography, which uh, I work with him on. Um, I mean, it sounds like almost a sitcom. You know, lower division football manager turns up in his suit to meet Elton John. And that was Elton John. Was he wearing one of his uh, sequin jumpsuits? Because that was it was that period, wasn't it? So I, I'm not sure. I think the, the, Graham told me this story a number of times, and I think the outfits got kind of more and more outlandish. So by the by, about the fifth telling, you know, Elton was in the full platform <laughs> shoes and uh, and sequin getup. But I think I think Elton at home was a, a, a slightly more humble figure. But you know, Elton's mum was there as well, and, and she was a Watford supporter, um, supported Watford uh, her whole life. Um, and so Elton and his mum kind of almost interviewed Graham Taylor for the job. And, uh, you know, Graham was a bit unsure. You know, he didn't know an awful lot about Elton John. He wasn't a fan of his music. You know, um, Vera Lynn was much more to Graham's taste. Um, and, uh, you know, Elton's very wealthy man. Graham's looking around at the artwork on the wall and the sort of, you know, the bars and the monuments and the, and the statues and things all around, around the house. Uh, very impressive house, of course thinking, well, is this guy really for real? So he says, well, what do you think it would cost to get to the first division? Because Elton had said that that's what I want to do. I want to get to the first division. I want to, I want to play in Europe. I want to challenge the top clubs. And, and Graham's kind of shaking his head. So what do you think it will cost you? 
and they sort of, you know, nobody really wants to say a figure. So Graham then eventually takes the bull by the horns and thinks, well, I'll shock him then. I'll, I'll give him a figure that might really sort of uh, knock him back in his seat. And he says, Elton, I don't think you'll get much change out of a million quid. And Elton, quick as a flash, said, let's go for it then. And that was it, <laughs> the start of this kind of, this oddball um, couple. You know, they were, they were like, they were like brothers, very similar in age. Um, and, and, you know, together they did it. Were they friends? Yeah, I think they were. I mean, you know, the, a friendship grew out of the, the working relationship. Um, Elton trusted Graham from the off, really. There were a couple of rocky moments very early on. Um, there was a League Cup tie. I think Graham's first home match as manager is against Reading, um, an evening game. And uh, Graham sat on the bench. And uh, the, in those days, the benches were just open, literally benches like you'd have in a PE, um, you know, in a gymnasium at a school. Um, and Graham and the staff are sitting on this bench and he takes a look down the line just as the match is kicking off and Elton is walking towards him, yeah, this time in a, in a suit, but, you know, quite a quite a uh, an eye-catching suit. And, and Graham thinks, what is the chairman doing here? And Elton sits down on the bench next to the, you know, the, the, the sponge man and uh, a couple of seats down from Graham. And he thinks, this is, well, we're going to have to have a word about this. And Elton just got too involved in the match. He was a, he was a supporter mm. first and, and a chairman second. You know, and at times he was turning around to the crowd and trying to G them up. And afterwards, Graham had to have a bit of a word and say, look, you're either going to be the chairman or you're going to be the chairman. And, uh, you know, he set boundaries straight away. And, uh, you know, that probably, well, I think it came naturally to Graham, but it still couldn't have been an easy thing to do, having signed what was a very big contract. Um, you know, Elton was a personality and a, and a, and a persona of his own and a strong character, but they, they set these boundaries and they worked very well together. And, and it really was a, a, a relationship that was at the very heartbeat of the club for a long time. So, and, and Mark... Yeah, from, from your point of view, because obviously, is it true? Isn't it? I've heard the story that that Graham Taylor t- turned down West Brom to go to Watford. Was it the money thing, or was it near to his house? What was it? No, um, no, and and as always, I'll, I'll be playing um, second Hornet, if you will, to uh, <laughs> to to Lionel on this. But as I recall, uh, he didn't like the attitude of of the West Brom directors. Um, is that right, Lionel? He, he That's just... absolutely, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, um, he, he felt uh, a lot more affinity, I think, to, to Watford and even to Elton than he did to, to how the West Brom directors kind of handled themselves. Uh, Lionel, you might want to step in because, you know, you're the... Well, I mean, the, the, the one thing that's, that's quite ironic about it is that Bert Milicic was, um, I don't think he was the chairman. He may have been the chairman of West Brom, but he was certainly on the board and he was certainly, um, you know, an influential figure at West Bromwich Albion at the time. Of course, then a, a key figure at the FA um, around the time when Graham was appointed the England manager. And I mean, Milicic, not my cup of tea personally, just from the little I know of him, but uh, yeah, West Brom, they were looking for a, a young thrusting manager. Um, and it, I think Graham Taylor would have fitted the bill perfectly, but uh, they met at a dinner that was held after some football league function down in London, and Graham sort of wandered over to the table after the, you know, after the, the desserts, and it was all kind of brandy glasses and cigars around the table, and, and he just didn't like the attitude of the West Brom directors who, you know, were, uh, you know, they they were the big club, and when 
Graham sort of played his one card, which was, well, I've got an offer from somebody else. They said, well, who's that? He said, Watford. They were at Watford. What? They're in the fourth <laughs> division. You'll be going to places like, you'll be going to places like Hartlepool's and Rochdale. And, you know, and uh, Graham didn't really like that because I think he, you know, he'd come from a small town club. Um, you know, he came from Scunthorpe. Uh, really, I know he was born in Worksop, but Scunthorpe was, was his hometown, really. Um, he played for Grimsby, played and managed Lincoln. And I think he thought, well, hang on a minute. You know, the, the Football League is made up of 92 clubs. They're just they're ranked in order of performance. Let's not, uh, you know, let's not think ourselves too grand. And um, so, yeah, West Bromwich Albion's loss at that time was uh, Watford's gain. Although, to be fair, West Brom didn't do too bad, did they? They got Ron Atkinson in and, uh, and, and developed yeah. a very fine side of their own. My no, main right. memory, my main memory. Oh, sorry. sorry, go on, Mike. No, I was going to say that that goes back to the um, when Watford were first looking at uh, uh, Bobby Moore, but then eventually went for uh, went for Graham Taylor because he was, you know, he knew uh, he was sort of down to earth. He knew the lower leagues. He was exactly what what they wanted. Um, not you know, not someone who looked down on the lower leagues like perhaps Bobby Moore would have done. Maybe it would have been. You know, he wouldn't have been out scouting and driving up to, you know, fourth division grounds to go or, or elsewhere to go look for um, or look for players. But I think um, back to the if I was I was just thinking back to the um, Elton John and Graham Taylor relationship. I don't know if uh, Lionel had this in one of his uh, many books, but but uh, Graham Taylor was very sort of plain spoken um you know, wouldn't hold back on what he thought. And apparently, according to uh, an article that actually Martin Amos wrote, uh, which we might get back to because it was a, an article about Watford's tour to China uh, that they took in the, in the early 80s, um, he said that uh, Elton was, his lifestyle was getting a bit out of control. So uh, Graham, uh, Graham Taylor invites him over to his house and gives him a pint of uh, brandy, I think it was. He offers it just, he walks in the door and he offers Elton a pint of brandy. And Elton takes it and he says, are you going to fucking drink that? What the <laughs> fuck is wrong with you? And then Elton, apparently, according to this article, uh, uh, Elton credited uh, Taylor with, with sort of helping him uh, stay on the straight and narrow, uh, as it were. I'm just sorry, sorry I'm just, uh, Lee makes notes to come back to Tour of China is what I'm just doing right now. Um, <laughs> It's funny you mentioned Bert Millichip there, that line, because it's really funny, isn't it? Because I'm of an age, and my main memory of Bert Millichip is looking slightly bemused at the FA Cup draw. You know, <laughs> pulling a ball out of a bag and trying to say a number, then look completely bemused as to what was going on. Well, so he well always seemed this really, time. he always seemed this really sort of benign old man, but obviously not from what you're saying. Well, well ahead of his time. These days we have Robbie Savage looking uh, amused <laughs> at the FA Cup draw and, and, and others. So let's not pick on Robbie Savage on his own. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, just on, uh, just on, you know, the impact Graham took when he took over at Watford, you know, it was absolute and total. And, and just picking up on, on what Max said about Bobby Moore and, and you know, I don't want to be unkind about Bobby Moore, but um, <laughs> we can only speculate of whether he would have done all of the work that Graham did but um, I think very few people would have put in the hours that Graham put in I mean one of the things that uh, one of the, the great joys of being able to work with Graham on his autobiography was, was having access to a lot of his old papers and diaries and records and stuff and and seeing his diary from summer 1977 where he's making notes about 
going to Watford, mm. having his first meetings with Elton, getting to know who the office staff are, you're listing out who everybody is, what they do. Um, you know, even even sort of walking around the town and just having a look and, and seeing what the place felt like uh, a couple of days before he actually signed his contract. He really did his homework on the place and on the people. Um, and, and that level of diligence was something that was consistent throughout his management career. Um, and and you, you, you just get a sense of just how much time and energy he was prepared to put into... Um, yeah, it was his career, obviously, but he knew that uh, he had to make a success of this job, um, and he was going to do absolutely everything that that he possibly could. And and that's that started with, you know, setting up a youth system pretty much on day one. Watford didn't really have a youth system; they had kind of a young, you know, kids that would come in and train, but there was no system in place. There's no scouting network to to really speak of. So he created all of that from day one. He appointed a man called Tom Wally, who's a fearsome. Uh, Sergeant Majorish type figure from North Wales who who terrified generations of young players, I think, but but made <laughs> made them into men and made them into professionals, I think, and and most of them that I've spoken to, you know, they will remember their bollockings fondly. Um, you know, it, it was a it was a sort of a time when uh, you know young players, you know, they cleaned the boots, they cleaned the toilets, they cleaned the dressing rooms. Um, and and they were they were made to work and it was uh, you know that that all came from the top. Graham was big on discipline, big on um, physical work. He wanted his players to be really fit, not just because he wanted the not just because of the style of play that he wanted to play, but he felt he felt well when he was fit, and he wanted the players to to feel fit. He, he felt if you spring out of bed in the morning, look forward to going to training, look forward to the physical work, um, you'll be better for it. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, you know, he didn't like poor body language. I mean, he told me off the, you know, rounded shoulders or slouching or, or what have you, you know, and he, he just got a, uh, just got a little glimpse of him every now and again, thinking, God, he must have been on the one hand terrifying, but on the other hand, absolutely inspiring. The sort of person that you want to impress and uh, and do your best for. And I think he went through that club like a whirlwind from day one. And it's, um, it's and we'll come back to that in a minute, but it's, it's, it's interesting to jump forward sometime because I think for an entire generation of people probably listening to this as well, and myself included really, because I'm 42, so I was, I was, I was born the year before he, he took over. And for a lot of people, Graham Taylor is permanently a middle-aged man. And I think, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And, and I think it's, yeah. it's, it's, you forget that when he took over this football club, he was 33 years old, 32 years old. 32, mm-hmm. I think, was it? Yeah, coming up on 33. That's pretty young to be given... And having to deal with a rock and roll star as your chairman, having come and played from, for, like you said, Lionel, he's played for Lincoln, he's played for Grimsby. He's not exactly a, he's not a, he's not a Terry Venables type, is he? There was no swing in London about him or anything. This was just so taking over this club with this rock and roll star as a chairman, a relatively yeah. young man. It's yeah, and and like no, you said, he, he did it. And sorry, Matt, he said he went it no, 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 root no, no, branch, no. didn't he? Go on, Matt. Sorry. No, yeah, that's right. I mean, a, a pretty. It's a, a unique position. You've got the chairman who's the same age as you or a bit younger, but also the players are the same age as you, at least, you know, some of the older ones. So he's, uh, that, that is, I think, a, um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty strange position, but um, he handled it well. He did not, he was not uh, cowed by having sort of senior pros. In fact, he, uh, you know, he let them know who was the boss. Um, in no uncertain terms, um, and he, as he did, as Lionel mentioned, with that um, 
the touchline, you know, sitting on the bench story. He let Elton know who was, you know, mm. who was in charge yeah. of affairs. Um, uh, and if the Brandy story is true there, too. So, yeah. And going back to the, the youth system, I think that's important, too. Uh, I mean, lots of, you know, he had Elton's money, the, the million pounds, as Lionel said, and, and they did. They did spend some money. They spent, was it on um, Steve Sims, I think, the most, they, mm -hmm. a third, when they were in the third division, most the third division club had ever played, paid for a player. Uh, but on the other hand, you had Nigel Callahan, you had Kenny Jackett, Luther Blissett, all, you know, all coming up through, through the youth system. And um, Lionel, in one of his many books, uh, tells the story of the one that got away, um, that, that Paul Merson was there when he was about 15. Is, is that right, Lionel? <laughs> Yeah, they lost out on him because Arsenal. Uh, Tom, this is a Tom Wally story, and if I can be permitted to do a terrible North Wales accent, um, Tom <laughs> Wally. Tom Wally told me this story. He said, "Well, he said uh, so." He's talking to Graham Taylor. Well, Gaffer, I think we're going to miss out on this lad, Merson, because Arsenal have offered his mum a fridge freezer. <laughs> <laughs> I can't so, believe Elton, you know, Elton wouldn't stump up for a fridge freezer. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, it's interesting now. I don't think they were in too keen on kind of uh, pampering the young players, too, giving them too much too soon. But, they, you know, when you think about the geographical location of Watford, you know, really a nothing club in, in 1977. Um, and Graham Taylor looking ahead, you know, it, it's interesting. Matt there mentioned a couple of names. Kenny Jackett, Nigel Callahan, Steve Terry. They all came into the side. Uh, right at the beginning of the 80s, um, uh, two or three years after Graham had taken over, and they were really kind of the first um, fruits of that youth system. Now, a couple of those were already on the books when um, when Graham took over, but it was Tom Wally who really made them into players and, and brought them through. Um, and, and when you think the geographical location, Watford competing with Tottenham, Arsenal, West Ham, Chelsea, Queen's Park Rangers at the time, a, a big side. And so to... to to attract kids and and say, well, look, come and train with us, come and play with us, rather than going to Tottenham or Arsenal. You know, it was quite a tough task. And and Graham never, you know, you know, he he wanted players that would be developed, that would be good enough to play in that first team. And so Tom Wally was always looking two, three, four years down the line. You know, will this 17-year-old be good enough to play in the Watford first team? And again, when you think about it, when they started the whole system, they were in the fourth division. And by the time players started breaking through, they were in the second division. So it's an absolute miracle, really, when you think Tom Wally, with, with virtually no resources to start with, was having to scout and having to develop, thinking, I need to be making players that are going to be good enough to get in the gaffer side. By, by, time, by the time they're old enough, the first team may well be in the first division. And when you look at the fact that they didn't really yeah. sign anyone... The, the summer that they got into the first division, 1982, they didn't really sign anyone of note. They signed Richard Jobson from non-league Burton Albion. And that, I think that really gives you an indication of just what a kind of team-building um, effort Graham and Tom Wally together and others, of course, were involved. But, you know, that, that's quite miraculous when you look at it that way. They, they did spend money when they needed to. They brought in experienced players. They spent a lot of money at times. Matt mentioned Steve Sims there, a record buy at the time for a third division club. You know, in 1980, he signed Jerry Armstrong from Tottenham for a quarter of a million pounds, which was Watford's record buy at that time. He got Pat Rice on a free transfer, but, you know, Pat Rice, a, a double-winning uh, player with Arsenal, you know, experienced, um, top-class defender. 
And so, you know, it was that blend, I think, of, of young players coming through and just the right kind of transfers at the right kind of time as the club was growing and progressing through the divisions that really, you know, it's easy to look back now and think, oh, well, it all worked out perfectly and, you know, everything slotted into place at the right time. But there were some sticky patches along the way. Um, but, you know, very few kind of duds, I would say, in that decade that Graham Taylor signed. Before we move on to some of those signings, I mean, it's, it's true, it's fascinating to think as a youth development person in the team that you're thinking actually, because if you're in the Premiership, if you're in the first division of the Premiership now, you're not likely to be relegated. You know, you're just trying to prepare people to play at that level. It's really interesting to think that you'd have to think by the time they get there, we're hopefully promoted again. I've never thought about it like that before. That's really interesting. But before we get on some of the players again, I'd like to, because when we were talking about this before we started recording, this is something I didn't realise. I'd like to talk about the dog track. Yeah. If that's possible, Mac. There was a dog track at Vicarage Road. In fact, it was a dog stadium. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. They had a dog track, and um, Graham, Graham Taylor took one look at it, and he said, yeah, no, 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 we're... we're, we're we're trying. He's, he was, he was. I think uh, into establishing, you know, into branding before branding was a thing, and uh, he, he wanted people to take Watford seriously. Hmm. Um, in fact, in the early days when he was looking to sign players, uh, he often wouldn't bring them to Vicarage Road. He'd take them to <laughs> uh, Highbury. I think he took one player to. Uh, met them there. Would meet them in other places because the, the ground was uh, in the seventies was. You know, I mean, it was not up to standard. I mean, it wasn't really up to third division standard uh, in, in parts. So, yeah, the dog track just, it you know, did not fit with that professional uh, look that he wanted. Now, I mean, plenty of places had dog tracks. Wembley, my granddad used to take me to the dogs at Wembley all the time. And for some he'd, he'd give me some little bit of money and, and I'd go to the... Um, the you know little booths where you place your bets and I'm like ten years old. They let me place bets. I was ten. I, d- I don't know why. Did um, they have Speedway at Vicarage Road as well? <laughs> I think I think they may have done. Yeah, it, they like, usually do at a dog track. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think they might have done a long time back. Yeah. So yeah, so you know, I mean, there there were all sorts of places. Even Wembley, they were they were looking to make an extra bit of money, and so uh, and that's understandable. But um, uh. But um, he, he, he wanted he wanted something better than that. In fact, um, and Lionel will will again, as always, know better than I do. But they uh, what the club even looked at uh, creating a, a sort of thirty thousand uh, capacity, one of the sort of modern you know leisure restaurant sort of facilities that had everything all in one place. Um, but the, the council uh, refused them uh, uh, to build it. So. Uh, that kind of went by the wayside. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were quite visionary in a lot of ways. I mean, just on the on the Greyhounds, Les Simmons, who was the groundsman, who was a big Greyhounds fan, and, uh, you know, he, he, he'd let the dogs on the pitch, and Graham couldn't stand that at all. And the final straw, though, was one day when Graham was trying to get into the treatment room, and there's just a tiny little treatment room cupboard, really, with a kind of a, a physio's bench on it. And uh, trying to get into the room, see what's going on, getting frustrated, the door won't open. Finally gets the door open, and Les Simmons, the groundsman, has got one of the greyhounds <laughs> up on the physio's bench, and they're, they're checking it. And Graham <laughs> says, what on earth is going on here? And Les Simmons says, I think he's 
I think he's done his. Uh, I think he's you know strained something, Gaffer. You know, it's like there's just this <laughs> we're little... treating dog, <laughs> <laughs> treating his dog. Yeah, treating one of the dogs in the in the players' video room. I mean, Graham put a stop to all of that pretty soon. And you're absolutely right, Matt. The the, the club, you know, they they could see the way that, that that football was going in the 80s. I mean, when you think it, it was pretty dark days. I mean, my first games were in the 80s. We're very fortunate they were at Watford because they created this family club. Um, they encourage families to come. They encourage kids to come. Uh, Graham Taylor actually ran the London Marathon in 1983, I think it was, in, to raise funds to create a family terrace, which was basically for kids, really, where there was a, a yellow line painted halfway down the terrace and the kids could stand in front of the line and the, and the adults could stand behind it. And it meant that the kids got an unobstructed view of the pitch and the adults could keep an eye on their particular kid from you know, a few rows back. And, you know, that was pretty innovative at the time. I'm not saying that Watford were the only club to encourage families, but, you know, there were some clubs that were pretty um, pretty dangerous places to go in those days, you know, dark and dingy and, and, and stadiums that were falling to pieces. And Watford put a lot of work into that. And Matt makes a great point there about the branding and just the, the vibrancy and the colours of, of Watford. When Graham took over, they were yellow and black, and he introduced the red, or he was instrumental in introducing the red. I'm not sure it was solely his decision, but, um, you know, red, red, yellow and black are kind of real bright, vibrant um, colours that, that everyone associated with Watford, and they, they made a real effort. If something looked a bit tatty, they just painted it yellow, and it looked better immediately, you know? You um, have that advantage, though. Having yellow in your armoury does does help. You can brighten things up quite quickly, can't you? It? Absolutely, yeah. And, and I think, you know, Watford, um, Watford went a long way to persuading, you know, a lot of people that, that football wasn't a dangerous thing to go and uh, spend your Saturday afternoons doing it, it, you know, in the 80s. I mean, I'm not saying there wasn't... I mean, there was a famous night when a load of West Ham fans ran across the pitch at Vicarage Road and it, it, looked, it looked a bit uh, iffy for, for a little while. But on the whole, Watford was a very safe place to go. There were no fences. There's, there was segregation, of course, but it, it wasn't like the sort of... You know, you, you went to some first division grounds... Uh, at that time, and, and the sort of menacing fences with kind of razor wire at the top to keep everybody in. And we know, of course, you know, fences had a, a tragic consequence at, at Hillsborough. Um, and I think Watford, you know, they thought, well, why on earth would anyone come and, and, and watch a game when they're looking through a, a quite a menacing looking fence? And so there was, a, you know, there was a real desire to try and make the place welcoming um, for as many people as they possibly could. No, that's right. As a as a twelve year old going to to Watford to Vicarage Road in the early eighties, uh, my my dad also, for reasons that I don't need to go into right now, used to sometimes take me to see QPR, um, and and the difference between going to uh, Vicarage Road and going to Loftus Road was just incredible. I mean, Loftus Road was could sometimes be a, a quite a nasty uh, place to to visit. Um, and the crowd was was quite intimidating. I mean, not that you know. I mean, the Watford crowd was not um, soft, but um, there was a big difference as a twelve-year-old in how comfortable I felt <laughs> at, at Vicarage Road as compared with with Loftus Road. And and QPR, lovely club. Um, and no offence to all the, the many <laughs> wonderful fans that they had. <laughs> I think it bears repeating for people, uh, some listening will be aware, but it bears repeating that obviously Taylor took Watford from the 4th Division to the 1st Division in five years. Mm. Which, yeah, has that been done by anybody else? Wimbledon were close, weren't they? I think Wimbledon may have made it a season quicker. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm off the top of my head, I'm not sure. But I, I mean, certainly, 
you know, club. It's, a, it's quite an achievement, is the point. Well, yeah, no, yeah, in that period, did. there was Luton uh, went up, went pretty quickly. Swansea, um, yeah. a little bit before Watford, uh, went from fourth to first. Uh, I don't know how many seasons, but but fairly fast. They, the thing about Swansea was they pretty much went all the way back down again in, in yes. almost the same number of seasons. Uh, I mean, Wimbledon obviously did it um, in in kind of uh, Watford's footprints and, and arguably did it better because they won the FA Cup in 1988, whereas Watford's FA Cup final in 84... No, it wasn't better. ...defeat to, uh, <laughs> to Everton, uh, unfortunately, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, the, you know, there was... I mentioned a little bit of a stumble in the journey... Um, when Watford reached the second division in 1979, having won promotion successive seasons before that, yeah, it took Graham Taylor a little while to um, create a team that was capable of, of getting making that final step up to the first division. Um, they they didn't really come close to relegation that first season in the second division, but they they weren't terribly comfortable. And I think he, having got there as a manager for the first time. He had a, a rare kind of crisis of confidence, perhaps, and thought, oh, I need to maybe refine things a little bit, please the purists a little bit more, maybe. And, and he brought a few players in to kind of maybe put an extra pass in um, to, to the, what was a very direct style of play. Um, don't get me started on the long ball accusations. We'll be here all night. But um, he, he, he made a few signings that, that didn't really work out. And I think at the end of that season, they, they scored... I think the lowest number of goals that, that a team of his had ever scored up to that point, and, it, and he, he was pretty bruised by that. And, and he thought, right, do you know what? I'm I'm just going to go for it my way from here. Um, and having only just really stayed up, yeah, Elton John offered him a, an extension to his contract and said, you know, uh, I believe in you. Off we go. We'll 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 you know push on again. And um, although Elton wasn't around quite as much in those years because he was touring a lot, doing huge world tours around that time, um, late seventies, early eighties. Exactly the amount of cocaine. <laughs> I suspect so. Although Graham always said he never never took it on on Watford Football Club premises. I don't know whether I don't know whether that's. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take How would you know? But yeah, fair enough. Word for that. Yeah. Um, and and then you know you, you mentioned we we might get on to talk about Jerry Armstrong but you know Jerry Armstrong Pat Rice they were two huge um, signings in 1980 that really that was the beginning of the team that would then um, make that final step to the first division and and arguably the last piece of the jigsaw uh, was the discovery the fortuitous oh, really yes. discovery of John Barnes which completed yes. this amazing okay. front four let's talk about Barnes, John let's talk Callahan, about let's talk let's about John Barnes, about John Barnes. John Mike. Oh, well, he was spotted. Uh, there, there were all sorts of, um, of myths that built up around the discovery of John Barnes. But I believe, and I may be wrong because I often am, but I believe that the, the, the true story is that he was spotted uh, playing in Sudbury by a cab driver. And obviously that's not the, you know, not the greatest tip necessarily. You're not going ne- you, to say, oh, well... Cab driver told me it was a good player I saw on the parks the other day, but they eventually went to uh, to look at him. It was John Barnes, and they bought him for a full set of kit. Is that true, Lance? That is that is more or less right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's uh, the cab driver. I, I think was a Watford supporter. I mean, I've heard so many versions of this story, and of course, um, 
you know, Graham Taylor's version is one account, and then John Barnes's version is slightly different, and and uh, so on. And, and you're right, Matt. There are myths about it, but I think there's a few things that we can reliably um, uh, say are true, and and that is that Bertie Mee, who was um, still at that time Watford's uh, assistant manager to Graham. I'm not sure. He may have moved on to the board by that time. I can't remember. But, you know, again, we talk about key figures in this whole rise. And Bertie Mee, you know, legendary manager um, who, you know, he was the, the Arsenal double winning manager in 71. Uh, and, and Graham <laughs> managed to persuade him to um, take a, an assistant manager's job or uh, at, at Vickers Road in 1977 when they were still back down in the fourth division. I mean, you know, what an, what an, an appointment that was. Um, but Bertie Mee, you know, said that they received letters from all and, all and sundry really saying, come and look at this player, come and look at that player. And it was just persistent from the part of this one particular individual said, look, if you don't get this lad, somebody else will. And I know QPR are looking at him. So Bertie Mee went down and watched on either one Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon whenever Sudbury Court played their matches and um, yeah he said I think he's worth getting in and they brought him in for uh, for some a youth game and then he did well in that and they put him in a reserve game and so Steve Harrison who was one of the coaches uh, one of Graham's coaches uh, at not just Watford but Aston Villa but at that time was playing for Watford and was in the reserves the way he tells the story is that you know, this lad turns up and uh, he's in the dressing room and Steve Harrison says, oh, what's, what's your name then, son? Uh, my name's John. He said, OK, John, and where do you play? He said, well, I play on left wing. Yeah, OK, well, I play left back, so we'll look out for each other, OK? And Steve Harrison <laughs> paints this picture of this sort of incredible... You know, John Barnes was an absolute athlete. I mean, he was the best at every sport going at, at Watford. You know, if they had a ping-pong tournament, he'd win that. Um, you know, he's the, he was the best runner over short distances and long. You know, and But Steve Harrison... And, and I think Steve's one of those people that may be a little creative, but the picture he paints is that uh, John Barnes is standing there in sort of leopard print speedos, you know, leopard print <laughs> underpants. Uh, and I, I, that's such a great image. I'm, I'm happy to go with that. Yeah. Um, but John Barnes, you know, they're playing and they're playing in this game and Steve Harrison plays the ball up the line to him or he says, as he said, I basically fired it out of a cannon at him and it, it stuck. <laughs> um, and he thought, well, this lad's all right. So he thought, I'll do that again, see what he does. And did that again and it stuck again. And he thought, this, yeah, not bad. Um, and then they win a free kick just outside the box and John Barnes says, oh, do you mind if I take it? You know, very politely. I said, okay, son, you, you have a go. You know, he wraps it around the wall and hits the bar. And at this point, Graham Taylor, who's sitting in the, the old main stand at Vickers Road, come running down and said, get him off, get him off. <laughs> and Steve Harris is like, well, he's not played that bad, gaffer. Said, get him off. And they, they substitute him and they take him up to the office and, and uh, Ken Barnes, John's dad's there, and, and they get the papers signed and, and they, they get him you know, on a contract before anyone else can, anyone else can see him. And... Uh, you know, whether or not that story has been elaborated uh, upon or exaggerated, uh, I'm, I'm quite happy to sort of add that one to the John Barnes myth because I think, you know, his, his career after that absolutely stood up to that it's, level of... Kind yeah, of he's, he's one of the few players, he's one of the few players you can believe that about, isn't he? I think you can say yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's right. It, uh, you know, the stories about him much, you know, just remind me of when uh, Sir Alex Ferguson said that when he first saw gigs... Uh, well, he, he he gets he gets very carried away when he describes young Ryan Giggs in in like the eight books that Ferguson wrote. Um, <laughs> Every one has a different, slightly different story about how very uh, um, thrilled he was. But the the whole you know like a beagle chasing a 
bit of silver paper in the wind and all of that. Um, Ryan Wilson as he was then, of course. Yes. And seeing uh, seeing John Barnes there, discovering John Barnes must have given uh, Graham Taylor that, that same kind of thrill. And, and he was an, uh, an instant, pretty much an instant success. And uh, again, as a, as a young lad, um, whenever he got the ball, the whole crowd just edged forward. There was just a buzz, um, you know, to just, you know, go on, Johnny B. And, and people were just, it, it was electric when, when he got the ball. Um, he was, we, we were uh, talking about- I, love, I have John Barnes, by the way, and I've been looking for it because I wanted to, I have John Barnes's Panini sticker. Sadly, when he was at Liverpool, it was, but I met him. <laughs> I met him in 91 or 92, and I used to carry around his, his Panini sticker. And I met him on the off chance. So I, you're on the off chance, yeah. Well, just because I love John Barnes, and um, <laughs> you know, and I I met him, and so I had him sign the back of the Panini sticker, which I still have, because I immediately went out and had it laminated, and <laughs> I carry it around in my wallet. That's a true story, and I would show you on the camera, and I had it ready, but I lost it. It's somewhere around, but yeah, you've not permanently lost it. It's called it. Barnes I mean, Hard. I did try to pay for something with it once, but it didn't go didn't go well. <laughs> That's amazing. But yeah, there must be like you said that I'm sure I'm sure that it's the stuff that it's the stuff that's always the big moment in sports films, isn't it? You know, John mm. Barnes running onto the field and doing whatever it is he does would be a brilliant moment in a sports film, wouldn't it? There was a similar story yeah. about Gary Pallister, a very different player, of course, but he was he was he was Middlesbrough signed him from Billingham Synthonia for a set of goalposts and nets. Basically, so the story goes. Uh, yeah, so that was John Barnes. It's probably worth going. Well, I want to do two things. One, I want to talk about the team, uh, the best team of that period, I suppose, and John Barnes would quite clearly be in it. So, if I was to ask you both to name sort of the the you know the archetypal or the, the greatest Taylor eleven of that period, uh, starting from the goalkeeper, who would it be? After you, Mac. Uh, well. Tony Coton, he's not from the, the classic early 80s period, but if you're talking about the 80s as a whole, and I just drifted off for a few seconds, so you may not have said that, but Tony Coton. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree, I'd agree with that. I mean, a, a top-class goalkeeper, very unfortunate not to play for England, you know, when yeah. he was at his yes. peak. Um, Unfortunately for him, someone... the most famous thing that, about Tony Coton, people remember that he wasn't Peter Shilton. Yeah. In many ways, which wasn't. is awful, but no, but, you know, because he was a great goalkeeper, you know. He was, and I mean, he was another. You know, talk about Graham Taylor's influence on people, and and you know, he could he could, you know, he picked a few rough diamonds over the years, and he he managed them, and he ironed out a few of their flaws, maybe. And Tony would probably be one of those because when he joined Watford from Birmingham City in uh, September '84, you know, he had a he had a court case hanging over him that could have ended very badly for him. He, you know, he could have been uh, sent to prison. Um, yeah. If it had gone gone really badly, he'd, he'd been uh, in trouble for an altercation with a taxi driver. And Graham Taylor <laughs> spoke was it the up same taxi court. driver that spotted John Barnes? <laughs> I don't think it was. No, <laughs> oh, I think it was oh. different taxi drivers. But there's a theme developing. Um, <laughs> but Graham Taylor actually went to court and, and spoke on uh, Tony's behalf to the to the you know spoke to the court and, and and managed to keep him contribute to keeping him out of prison. And <laughs> when they came out. Uh, Tony's sister apparently said, uh, "I don't know who 
I don't know who he was describing there because that's not you. You know, Graham had given a great character <laughs> reference. Um, yeah, saying, he you know, didn't, he a, didn't know him, did he? He didn't know Tony Coden. He just signed he's up, him. <laughs> he's an upstanding lad. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and, and yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, uh, you know, it, those years that after Tony Coden joined, joined Watford, you know, I think had he... Had he gone to a you know a, a big club straight away and, and played his very peak years for, for you know one of the big city clubs, I think he probably would have played for England. And this is, all, this is all a little harsh on um, Steve Sherwood because he was uh, the incumbent during the the real glory years. But I, we might, if if we talk about the cup final uh, mm. later on, Lee, mm-hmm. then uh, we'll come back to Sherwood because he had his one big moment and it, it was not a good one. So the back four, the the archetypal eleven. Then you got Cope. Who's the back four? Well, I think I think Matt and I are in more or less agreement here. I mean, I think right back has to be Pat Rice because uh, of the, you know he he was there during the promotion season to the first division, and then the following year when they finished runners up to Liverpool, um, he was the captain. Um, you know, they Graham Taylor squeezed the very last out of him, um, and and and. You know, Pat Rice enjoyed a, a sort of a, a, an autumn of his career, having been a one-club man at Arsenal prior to that. So I would definitely go Pat Rice on on the right, and I guess Wilf Rostron on the left. Um, another yeah. kind of Graham Taylor, you know, spotting something that perhaps other people and perhaps even Wilf Rostron himself hadn't really thought about. But he Wilf had been a, a, a winger before, and and he was his career really wasn't going anywhere at Watford. He, he was. I don't think he was on the transfer list, but he was certainly thinking, well, I'm not going to have my contract renewed here. Um, and then midway through the 81-82 season, um, there was an injury to the regular left-back. And, and Graham Taylor just thought, well, I think you can play left-back. And, you know, the following year, I think the, the following year, yeah, he's player of the season uh, in, in the first division, you know, at, in his new position. And, uh, I mean, again... Just an instinct thing. I've asked Graham about this, and he said, "I just had this feeling that Wilf would be happier coming from deep, overlapping uh, John Barnes and and linking up with the play rather than being up there and the ball coming to him. He can anticipate and and push on and and uh, and, and join the attack rather than be the attack." Uh, I think you know that's those are those tiny little decisions that you think. Yeah, oh, how simple! But um, clearly, it's not that simple. Otherwise, we'd we'd all be excellent football managers. Centre backs, Matt. Um, well, just very briefly, yes, with Roster and Pat Rice at right back, I'll, I'll absolutely go with it. There's other options. Uh, I think David Bardsley or maybe Nigel Gibbs or something. But uh, Pat Rice, though, if um, if Mr. Gary Naylor is listening, and I'm sure he is, um, I just want him to go onto YouTube and look for. Pat Rice goal versus Everton. <laughs> it, it was the first Watford's first game in the top flight. Um, Jerry Armstrong f- scored their first ever goal in the top flight, but the second goal in the two 0 victory over the School of Science was Pat Rice whipping in free kick. Big Neville Southall collects it, steps back over the line, two 0 <laughs> And I think, judging by the uh, the lip reading I did on the video, he's. Still pissed off about it. <laughs> Go look it up. Look it up, Gary. Fun times. Centre backs. Meanwhile, oh. back in the centre of defence. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you, you had you had an actual question, didn't you? Um, uh, John McClelland and Steve Sims. That's it. That's the list. That's the two. Yeah, I, I can't I can't see any further than those two. McClelland was absolutely fantastic. Uh, again, uh, a player who didn't look like a footballer. Um, 
when he first turned up for training, uh, Tony Coton tells this story. He says that McClellan came out in these tiny shorts and little ankle-length socks, white ankle-length socks, <laughs> not not football socks. That's brilliant. And he's, he's more or less hobbling. Like looks, He's got a very ungainly sort of running and, and indeed walking style, John McClellan. It, it looked like, and they were all they were thinking, who on earth is this? This guy has never played for Glasgow Rangers. I'm sorry, but we're just not having that. And then in his, uh, in his first match, which was against Sunderland, um, you know, the ball comes over the top. Uh, Howard Gale was the striker for Sunderland or the winger for Sunderland, uh, whichever. Um, you know, he's got a couple of yards on McClelland and, and Coton, who played with Gale at Birmingham, thinking, well, I'd better get ready to save this because Gale's quick. And McClelland just kind of eased himself into top gear, drew level, just got half a, you know, half a body length in front of him and just nicked the ball away cleanly, ran round and then and cleared it up the line and Coton thought, well, okay, maybe he has played for Glasgow Rangers because that was that was pretty good. And and that was McClellan's kind of strength. I mean he was quick but he saw danger quickly and he cut out danger before um before it had a chance to become really dangerous. No, no, that's right. McClellan couldn't couldn't walk, as you say, but he could run. And uh Steve Sims, um he was. Uh, we we mentioned him before uh, that he was the the uh, most a uh, third division club had ever paid for anyone. Hundred and seventy five thousand from Leicester, I think it was. And uh, uh, he he was a terrific defender too. Probably could have played for England if it if it wasn't for injury. Um, he missed the the eighty four cup final through injury. He he took a I think it was he, he took a, a kick to the ankle, and he he was like yeah that hurt, and then he realised it's bleeding. Uh, I, th- I think this is the right story, right, Lionel? And then they, yeah. they stitch him, they stitch him up. They put him back on because I think they probably used their one substitute. And uh, he, they stick him on the wing, get him out of the way. But he, uh, he plays on. Turns out later, he's broken his ankle. He played mm. the rest of the game on a broken ankle. Amazing. Um, yeah. Um, so into and, the and, mid- and then and then missed the cup final because of it. Into the midfield and and just just some names if you will because we're getting short on time now. But you got obviously the left side is John Barnes. Well, I'm, I'm going to be controversial Ooh, here. I mean, okay. we're, we're playing four. We're playing four-two-four here. So we've oh, only okay. Got two, All right. Okay. We've only got two kind of holding midfielders, as far as I can see. That's fine. Uh, then. If you, hey, it's your team. If you said it's four-two-four, it's four-two-four. So yeah, go I'm going to. I'm going to guess Les Taylor, Kenny Jacket. Well, I'm definitely with you on Kenny Jacket. I'm going to chuck in Kevin Richardson. In oh, I right, feel yeah. bad with Les Taylor. I, I mean, I, I'll go. I'll, we'll, we'll play him a half each. Uh, yeah. Taylor and Kevin Richardson, but Kevin Richardson came in in Graham's last season before he went to Aston Villa. So this, we're talking 1987-88, and I talked about the style of play and the controversy over it. But Kevin Richardson was a was a classy footballer. I mean, he he won the league with Everton. Um, he went on to then win the league with Arsenal in '89. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he was he was a top top footballer, and and that was a period where Graham was just tweaking the team a bit, and and. You know, you talk about, oh, well, teams have worked them out. And perhaps they did in those those years between them finishing second in 83 and, and then mid-table the, all the rest of the seasons. But, um, I, you know, Graham wasn't a coach or a manager that stood still and thought, well, that's what we do and we are going to do that forevermore. You know, he was, he was evolving his style on and Kevin Richardson was definitely a part of that. So front four then, the left is definitely John Barnes. I've got Barnes. it right this time. And then, <laughs> yes. uh, so, so who's the other three? On the right, Nigel Callahan. Uh, he uh, now Nigel Callahan was a great player, very much underrated. Um, he, uh, I mean, he scored some 
terrific goals. My my favourite goals uh, of his. I mean, there's the there's the the rocket against um, was it Levski Sofia in the UEFA Cup second round. Uh, Watford's only only foray into Europe. Um, just uh, just just hit it so sweetly. But my my actual favourite goal of his. He was 19 years old, and it's the fourth round of the cup. Uh, home to West Ham, he had earlier cushioned a, a John Barnes cross uh, right into the path of an in- tremendously offside uh, Jerry Armstrong, who poked it in and then, uh, as a reward, got a loving rugby tackle from Phil Parks. Um, but then there's a scramble in the box. He uh, he back heels it in, and uh, and John Motson on commentary says. There was a competition for the cheekiest goal of the year, of the cheekiest goal of the season. That's got to win it. It was a, <laughs> it's a beautiful little goal, and uh, so yeah, Callahan. I mean, he could use both feet. He could shoot. Uh, he could he could cross like Beckham. He was he was a fantastic player. Middle two, Lionel. I think it's got to be the classic partnership: Luther Blissett and Ross Jenkins. Um, yeah. A kind of a a partnership that that. Uh, Graham Taylor would repeat not just at Watford but also at Aston Villa the kind of the the, the target man and the, the the smaller player quicker player that would run in behind win all the um, you know feed off all the knockdowns and, and run in behind from to get on the flick-ons um, they scored a hell of a lot of goals in the third division and uh, were still going strong in the first division I mean Ross Jenkins played for the club when they were bottom of the fourth division and he played for the club when they were top of the first division wow. I mean, that's, that's that remarkable often, not, yeah, yeah. you right. don't you know and, and Luther Blissett you know the, the press called him Luther Missit uh, he had a he had a very difficult year at AC Milan, um, but you know he won the Golden Boot in eighty two, eighty three. Scored more goals that season than Ian Rush, and uh, I don't think he gets the credit for uh, being such a brave forward. I don't just mean in the physical sense of putting his head in where you know people might kick it off, but in the sense that if he missed a chance, he shot the next time, and he yep. shot the next time, and he kept getting in the positions, and he kept making making the chances for himself and and in that sense he was kind of the archetypal Graham Taylor forward and that he would never ever you know give up on a chance to get the ball over the line. Mac Mac you yep. men, you mentioned uh, Jerry Armstrong there in passing he doesn't make the all-time 11 but is he on the bench? Um do we get one is it early 80s you want to get one sub? Oh that's true yeah yeah. <laughs> well but, let me let me answer that one because uh, actually when Jerry Played for Watford. He was there was a season when he was on the bench so often his teammates called him the judge. They're so creative footballers, aren't they? The, 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 uh, let's move on to talking about our journeyman, journeyman of the week, which is actually Jerry Armstrong, because he's obviously we've discussed him already in Watford. It's worthwhile remembering Jerry Armstrong, a Northern Irish striker. Who played for Countum 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 clubs in a 24 year career. I used to probably play a manager in non league by then. They always end up as non league player managers, journeymen, don't they? <laughs> but he's a. Um, but I think the thing to. Yeah, but I suppose what he's most famous for, and I think Mac, you made the point, is he about him being. Well, what is he Watford's top goal scorer for? Uh, in World Cups. In World Cups, that's it. Yeah. Watford's top scorer in World Cups with three. Um, and there are, I don't think any other players while they were at Watford ever scored in a World Cup. Mo Johnson scored at Italian 90, but he was a Rangers probably. Um, so yeah, three girl, uh, girls, 
That's Mo Johnston as well. Three, <laughs> three goals at uh, Espana 82, including that goal against Spain uh, yes. in, one, in the 1-0 win, where um, he just sets his feet and he thumps the ball through, right through a defender and Arcanada, who had kindly palmed the ball directly to him right in front of goal. Um, yeah, uh, that my I, my uh, granddad was from. We're short on time, aren't we? But uh, no, okay. my my granddad was from um, Northern Ireland, uh, and was a, a bit of a, a, a an amateur player himself. In fact, my uncle, my dad's older brother, was um, scouted and bought by Wolves in 1960 when they were Wolves, and uh, he played in the the reserve team uh, alongside teenage Alan Ball. But uh, he never made it because, to quote my dad, he pissed his talent up the wall. <laughs> um, but anyway, so so uh, I, I sort of had Northern Irish uh, um, uh, connection, and that goal was, uh, um, you know, watching him as a Watford player uh, beating Spain in their own on their own patch, really uh, incredible. Then of course he goes, uh, he spends another year at Watford. Then he goes to Real Mallorca, where he's actually did did all right, did quite well, and. Um, uh, got a lot of stick for being the guy that scored winning <laughs> yeah, goal course, in yeah. Spain in, in, in Spain 82. Um, and I think, I think that game was played at um, Seville, at Sevilla. And uh, he, so when he went and he played for Mallorca at Sevilla, he got the most fearful uh, brick bats and pelters from the crowd, but scored in, a, in that very same goal. So that probably shut them up for a little while. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he was a, he was he was a a player who had a great deal of confidence in himself and uh, very upbeat. And I think um, although his impact at Watford was largely off the bench uh, a lot of the time, particularly once they reached the first division, um, you know, he was just a positive type of guy to have around. I know that when he first joined Watford, um, the first training session they were running around the pitch, and uh, again, this is a Steve Harrison story, so take a bit of it with a pinch of salt. But uh, he had he had those kind of you know shorts on that have the little pocket inside where you can put a bit of change and maybe your keys or something, you know, the sort of gym shorts that you, you might put your locker key in. Anyway, he's obviously got a bit of change in his shorts and uh, they're running around and there's just this sort of jingle jingle with every step that Jerry's taking and uh, and he's, you know, very upbeat and positive. Oh, lovely, lovely day for training, Miss Graham. Lovely day for training, Miss Graham. Oh, it's, it's, it's Bonnie here, isn't it, Graham? And on and on with the Graham. And uh, it, for those who don't know, Graham Taylor was very much a manager who insisted on being called gaffer or boss, uh, or as he said, Any, anything you like as long as I can't hear it. Um, but he didn't. He didn't like that. He didn't like the first name familiarity from his from his players. And uh, you know, the rest of them were not tipping Jerry off or giving him a, giving him a help help out here. And they let him get on with this, calling him Graham. And in the end, uh, yeah, Graham, he'd he'd had enough of it. He said, I don't know if you recognise this, uh, Jerry, but. You've only been here a day or so, but have you not noticed that all the rest of the players, they call me gaffer or boss? Is that okay? And Jerry said, that's fine by me, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. you know, he, he was, uh, he was he, when I met him um, for, for one of the books, you know, he, he was, you could just feel the kind of enthusiasm. I think you even get that on his, on his commentary. Yeah, he's uh, a pundit now, for the, yeah. for the On Sky for Spanish League. And, you know, 
not in the eighties. I mean, people always joke and are a bit unkind about Ian Rush going to going to Juventus and 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 having a really tough time and saying, "Oh, it's like living in a foreign country." I'm not even sure whether he actually said that he or didn't. not. But it was a Kenny Dalglish joke that then got yeah, traction. Yeah, right. But but I think you know, it was, like a lot of those jokes, he was sort of grounded in a, in a bit of truth. Whereas Jerry went to Mallorca. He learned Spanish. He really threw himself in. Um, I know Watford went on a tour, uh, played a couple of games in Mallorca in the summer of '84, and, and Jerry kind of organised that trip. I had a hand in organising that trip. And you know the, the Watford players who knew him were like, "Blimey, Jerry! It's like he's lived here 30 years. Everybody knows him. Everybody <laughs> smiles. Everyone buys him a drink." And uh, you know, I think we kind of from that era, you know, players. Um, uh, you know, they made themselves. It, it, squads were a lot smaller, and and you know, perhaps a lot more sort of competition for just being in a in a squad. And Jerry offered, I think, a lot more aside from 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 his footballing ability, which was, you know, he was he was a very good striker, very good forward, but um, just a great person to have around the club. The uh, before you all write in, all you listeners out there, I will make the point that it was Valencia that uh, he scored the goal in, not Sevilla, Mac. <laughs> Sorry to be that guy. No, well, no. I, I'm sorry to be that guy that doesn't. <laughs> the uh, so that was Jerry Armstrong, our journeyman of the week, who did come back from from uh, Real Mallorca to play for West Brom, Chesterfield, Brighton and Hove, Albion, Millwall, Crawley Town, Glenavon, Bromley, and Worthing, as well as before Watford playing for Tottenham, Bangor, St Paul's, Swift, and Cromac Albion. Quite an achievement. Um, we are coming towards the end of this now. There's a couple of things I would like to talk about. One is let's shoot this fox about the style of play shall we was it as bad as people say no (laughs) Mac one then no I mean they everybody hated them the press hated the style of play Uh, the other managers uh, hated it Um, Lionel in one of his books talks about uh, how Glenn Hoddle they were uh, I think it was the 82-83 season, the first season they were, they were in the, the first division. And he's in, in the warm-ups, he's just kicking the ball as high as he can in the air, making fun of the long ball game. Um, and, uh, well, then Watford beat them 1-0. So, <laughs> beat that huddle. Um, and, uh, no, but they scored an unbelievably large number of goals. I mean, if I may... Um, if I can find my many, many notes from all my research. All right. They, when they, in 82-83, when they finished second, um, they scored the second most goals. They scored 74 uh, behind rampant champions Liverpool, who had 87. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the Liverpool team that, that lost five and drew two of its last seven games uh, and still won the league by 11 points. Um, but they, they beat Sunderland 8-0, they beat Notts County 5-3, and on the other hand, they conceded 57, which was the most in the top half of the league, other than West Ham. 83-84, finished 11th, scored the fifth most goals, conceded the joint second most. Uh, then in 84-85, scored the second most goals again. They scored 81 goals, but they conceded 71. <laughs> uh, what, what did so, they... What they, if you wanted to, if you wanted goals, you know, if you wanted pretty passing, go somewhere else. But if you wanted goals, you went to Watford. What did what did Taylor feel about the criticism of his style of play, Lionel? I think it 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 it, it grated because I think people thought it was clueless, kind of lumping it up the pitch, and, oh, and yeah. he was very very sensitive to that kind of criticism. That it was just, uh, you know, all we're doing is bashing it long. 
um, aiming for the big man and, uh, you know, uh, sort of bulldozing the ball into the net. And I, you know, I, 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 it's difficult because I'm like Mac biased, I guess. I, you know, I grew up on that football and it was all about shots and crosses and chances and goals. And, you know, people wanted to be entertained. And you look at, you mentioned 84, 85. I mean, towards the end of that season, they went to White Hart Lane on the Saturday and won five one, and they beat Manchester United on the Monday night and won five one. You know, I mean, they are extraordinary results by any standard, and it was because they went for the jugular. They went, uh, they were an attacking team. They had these two wingers, Callahan and Barnes. Um, but you you can't just you can't just knock it long. And Graham's phrase was always, "Well, if it's as simple as that, why doesn't everybody do it?" Because yeah. it's, you know it's working working for us. There was an awful lot of work that went into it. It was. You know, and I think the players would, would say, you know, double sessions a lot of the week, uh, morning and afternoon, working on the pattern of play. This the theory of, of shadow play, which had come from uh, the fifties and sixties of, of lining up eleven players with no opposition. But when your left back's got the ball right, what's what's the left back's pass? Does it go down the line to the left winger, or does it go into the channel for the secondary striker, or does it go up to the big man, or does it go inside? And you know, you had your options, right? Who's marked and who isn't? And there, every player knew their own job, but they also knew everybody else's job. So if, to use some examples, if John Barnes was right out on the left wing then that meant that Kenny Jacket had to pull over a bit or it meant that Luther dropped in a little bit or whatever it was, you know. And I think that's where the, Graham had no problem with criticism of a direct style of football where he wanted to get the ball wide, he wanted to get it into the middle, he wanted to create chances. And he had this theory of, you know, if you, if you create, it takes 10 shots to score one goal on average, so you need to create 20 chances in a game. You know, breaking a match down into its constituent parts and, and thinking, how are we going to win this game? And I think Graham had a style, but it was based on trying to win football matches. And um, just well, to sort of dismiss people, it. Yeah, no, pe- right. People are all over the, the Opta shit now, which is basically mm. all about that, which is interesting. Yeah. Well, it's not interesting which, because I find it quite nah. tedious. But yeah, it's a. Well, but, but no, was, that's, it, but that's right. But that's, but that's right. I mean, they, they, it wasn't aimless. It, it, it was to a plan, and they tried to win games. That was, which was where what my point was about also saying how many goals they conceded. They went at you for ninety minutes, and they tried to win. Uh, you know, they they tried to they tried to win by scoring more goals than the opposition. I mean, and I, I named and you know, mentioned a couple of scores. They also um, in those days they also lost seven three at Nottingham Forest. Uh, and and Clough comes into the the changing room afterwards and says, "I love you lot," um, <laughs> but because they you know they they tried to win and they would win big and they would lose they win a lot of five ones and they would lose a lot of four and five ones. You mentioned the Opta stats there. I mean, Graham he wasn't the only one, but you know he was one of the, a few managers who who had someone sitting in the stand making notes on every game in shorthand. You know where are the where are the shots. Where are the crosses coming from? How many passes? Where where's the ball being given away? And then that would that person would then go away and, and write that up into a report. And they're incredibly detailed, single spaced, six page reports on every match. Um, you know, with where where the possession was lost, where it was won. You know, and and it was all based on if we win the ball high up the pitch, if we win the ball back high up the pitch, so close as close as possible to the opposition's penalty area, we've got a really good chance of creating an opportunity in two so, or three passes. So Greg um, Taylor basically invented Moneyball. That's what I'm taking away from this. <laughs> the, uh... well, I, I think he was very, I think he was very cautious about taking credit for that because the 
theory of it came from a man called Charles yeah, Reap, yeah, yeah. who was a, a, a sort of statistician who, who created this system. And, and Graham took the bits that he agreed with and, and jettisoned the bits that he didn't agree with and, and adapted it and moulded it and took influences from coaching courses and elsewhere. But I certainly think that, you know, when people talk about how good Tottenham are because, you know, Harry Kane and Deli Alley win the ball back on the edge of the penalty area, well, you know, Luther Blissett and Ross Jenkins were doing that right. in 1979, 1980. Um, are, that's right. Um, it was the modern pressing game. Yeah. We are um, very quickly running out of time, but as a la- the last thing I will ask is it came to an end in 1987 um, when he shuffled off to Villa. Uh, was it just the right time to go, uh, Lionel, or was there something more to it than that? I think it was the right time to go. I mean, Elton had perhaps been losing a bit of interest he had a lot of trouble with the Sun newspaper and various uh, sort of stories. I come back to my spectacular amounts of cocaine points, but yeah, go on. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, they were, there were some difficult years there for Elton, I think, and um, I don't think that affected the football club so much, but I think Graham, you know, they built a new stand, the one that now is named after Graham Taylor uh, um, on one side of the pitch, you know, ironically um, named after Graham Taylor now because it wasn't named after him obviously when it was built but Elton ended up paying for that stand out of his own money you know three million quid because they failed to raise the money from either a, a share issue or from right. investment or whatever and I think there was just a sense that you know we've created this club we've finished mid-table now sort of four or five years in a row um, we've been to the cup final but haven't been back we've finished runners up are we going to top that I think there was a realisation from Graham that uh, am I, am I going to do another ten years here no so uh, what is there really any point doing another one or two? And I think he certainly had earned the opportunity and, and earned the right to go off and test his skills elsewhere. My only surprise was that he chose to drop down and go to Aston Villa rather than, than wait for, you know, a, 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 I don't want to offend any Aston Villa fans who've got this far, but, um, you know, a really big club. Because I think oh, if he'd gone to a really big club, Tottenham or Arsenal or, you know, Manchester United, who showed a bit of interest at, at various points, um, had he gone to one of those clubs, I think he would have had a less difficult ride as England manager potentially had he had it all worked out. But you know, these are uh, you know we're speculating here, aren't we? But I think it was the right time to go, um, and he he more or less did at Villa exactly what he did at Watford. He got them out of the second division and he took them to runners up in the first division. Um, another incredible achievement. For the record, I think Aston Villa are a very big club. Villa fans. <laughs> <laughs> I think so that's... Direct, direct, your, direct your questions to Lionel Burnie. <laughs> I think that brings us to the end of this, this really interesting chat about Watford. No, I think it, it's... No tour of China, Lee. No, we'll have to come back, Mark, and talk no, about the tour of China. China. When China win the World Cup, you can thank Watford. <laughs> we will have a feature on the tour of China in another episode, I promise you, for those of you who are waiting with bated breath. The... Um, what I will say is I think it's good to have things like this because it's, you know, it'd be awful if Graham Taylor was only remembered for that documentary. And I'm not going to talk about it in any detail, but I think it's very good to have stuff like this to remind you of what he achieved and what a decent man he was. Um, thanks very much, Lionel. Thanks very much, Mac. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will speak to you all again soon. Take care. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.